Fortune 500 companies trust Interoptic for optical transceivers and cables. Since 2004, Interoptic has provided high-performance optics and cables at a fraction of the cost of OEM gear. Interoptic products are 100% tested and backed up by real engineers. Work with the optics experts at Interoptic. Find out more at interoptic.com slash packetpushers. Mastodon is a decentralized social media platform. It relies on a federation model that connects disparate servers or instances in the Mastodon parlance that are stood up and operated by anyone. Yes, anyone can download Mastodon's open source software, set up a site, and start hosting users. Instance owners can set their own policies around users and content, and they also get to decide which other instances to federate with. And if you're thinking, wow, that sounds like a lot of work to use Mastodon, you don't have to run your own instance. You can join any number of pre-existing ones. For example, I've got an account on mastodon.social, and I'm able to interact with people across a variety of instances. But some people are willing to take the plunge of basically operating a mini social network. So on today's Heavy Networking, I'm talking with two people who have built and are running Hackyderm. Hackyderm is a Mastodon instance that orients itself toward technical-minded folks. And at last check on their publicly available dashboard, they're supporting more than 45,000 users and are peered with over 21,000 other instances. My guests are Chris Nova, a software engineer and principal at GitHub, as well as Hackyderm's benevolent dictator for life, and Dominic Hammond, senior engineer manager at Google and Hackyderm's monitoring maven. Uh, Nova and Dominic, welcome to the podcast. So to get us started, what attracted you to Mastodon as a social network platform, given that there's so many other existing ones available? What attracted me to, to Mastodon, I think, honestly, was the fact that I could just run it myself. Um, as somebody, you know, as a security engineer and somebody who's accountable for uh, a, a large swath of the infrastructure I run at my day job, which is github.com, um, you know, I like to see how things work. And I think for me, just the idea of like, I could actually go and unpack and see how a lot of the behind the scenes interactions with other servers works was exciting to me. I also think that I had heard a lot about Federation and I certainly had ideas of how I would implement Federation and some experiences uh, with federating Kubernetes clusters in various platforms I've set up in the past. And so getting a, a chance to see how we were publicly federating across the internet was certainly exciting to me. So the how does it work and what can I see and what does it look like on the inside it definitely was the first thing that that attracted me to Mastodon. Dominic, how about you? Uh, for me, uh, it was about the the challenge of doing something, uh, running a, a complex system, distributed system, and being involved with that, um, I, I, I have a number of pet projects and uh, I was part of a, a tech community that, that Nova is set up and, and runs. And when it was proposed that we do this, it sounded like a really interesting project. Um, and it's something that I could dip my experience into and do something that's sort of outside of some of the closed tech bubbles of the companies that I've worked for. Mm -hmm. Something that see what was there, see how mature it was and see if we could bring something more to it. Um, yeah, so certainly didn't expect it to be as big a thing as it was. I think the timing was uh, fortuitous. Uh, it was meant to be sort of a, this is an interesting thing to run. Let's see how it goes. And then a few months later, uh, it became a much bigger deal. Yeah. So let's dig into that because, you know, I understand the impulse to sort of want to experiment to play with something that's technologically interesting. And then you invited other people to join you and suddenly you had a really big project on your hands while you're also holding down full-time jobs. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> did, were, yeah. you, were, you, were you expecting that kind of growth when you launched Hackyderm? And were you, did you feel like, you know, you were prepared to, to tackle suddenly this complex system? Not at all. No, heck no, not at all. I think like I'll, I'll, I'll be the first one to say that, you know, 
uh, Dominic and I, we, we hang out and, you know, my discord, there's a group of us that started out, you know, on my Twitch stream and, you know, that's later turned into a, a full fledged open source nonprofit. Right. And, and this whole thing happened with like me just wanting to have an outlet outside of my day job where my little hobby projects could kind of exist and I could find a, a good group of folks to hang out with. So there was never this, this moment where like we sat down and we were like, we're going to go build the super successful social media network and we're going to go compete with Twitter or anything like that. Like it was, it was very much like Nova's on Twitch, you know, she can't sleep. She's going to go, you know, Pac-Man install Mastodon and turn it on and then open up a, a port in the firewall and then like her and a couple of her buddies joined and then all of a sudden the news at Twitter started to break down and I think that you know there then there was this sort of really large unexpected cascading effect of like where do we go and I guess for whatever reason people decided to pick us as a place that they trusted and you know 100 users turned into 500 500 turned into a thousand and then before you know it we have roughly 45 or 50,000 people who have interacted with, with the website and we're federating with 20,000 different servers across the internet like it I think most of that happened in 30 days wow. uh, I want to say yeah wow. during the month of November it was it yeah, was no. very much unexpected I already had a home lab. I was running a few little, you know, things. I was running Matrix, which is like a distributed, federated real-time chat thing. Um, and I was maybe days away from trying out Mastodon myself. Mm -hmm. And then it came across the Discord and I was like, yeah, sure, let's jump in. And I expected maybe people from the Discord to jump into it and use it. And we'd do what other people have done, right? Have a small instance, federate with a bunch of others, be part of the Fediverse. Uh, and it was, you know, it would be our sort of home base for this little tech community. Um, and then November happened. And uh, yeah. as as Nova said, uh, we were seeing uh, a new user every one and a half minutes for a month. Uh -huh. um, uh, thanks to the, you know, um, implosion of the Twitter user base uh, and, and people looking for an outlet. And it, it wasn't just us, right? It was across the Fediverse. Every instance, I think, saw huge accelerated growth for a month and were taken by surprise i think i don't think anyone expected that level of scale to hit their instances we certainly didn't and and as, as nova said we didn't go into it looking for it but it certainly was a fun challenge when it came along yeah and just so folks who haven't been on mastodon know uh have some context it is essentially twitter like it's a microblogging site you can write comments, share posts, upload pictures and videos and interact and follow other people. So it's pretty familiar as a social media network if you've been on one before. Um, I, like I think many good tech projects, this one started in a basement. Nova, I think it was your basement. Can you kind of walk us through your initial hardware and software setup? Yeah. So like, like, like Dominic was saying, you know, we, we had um, a home lab here at my house. It's actually behind me, if you can see on, on the screen here. Um, and it's just, you know, it's a half rack that is basically my home lab. It's got a couple of uh, Dell R630s and one R670. Um, each one has, I think, eight SSD bays with, you know, a handful of SSDs I've collected throughout the years. And, you know, this has been where I I run Kubernetes. I, I host different like uh, online tools I'm working on. I've developed some like invasive uh, eBPF exploitable code, which I've, you know, contributed to uh, the Ukraine's cybersecurity sector. Like I, I've done some some pretty interesting bits of computer science back there. And, and then all of a sudden we were like, oh, sure, we need a place to kind of run 
uh, Mastodon. And I like, I still remember the first time I gave somebody else other than me SSH access to to one of the <laughs> nodes back there. Right. And, and like, that's, you know, that's, that's invasive, right? Like that's, that's my little sensitive. server. Yep. Yeah. Like, like that was kind of like, please be careful that I have like important projects on here. Um, but like it, it wasn't, we weren't, like I said, trying to build anything, you know, big or, or, or really like all too impressive or anything. Like we were just running a small, a small Ruby process on like a single node in, in my rack over like my home fiber ISP, right? Like it wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't anything like I see at my day job at GitHub where we're doing, you know, hundreds of thousands of requests per second or anything like that. It was just a small amount of traffic. And like, I just wanted to make sure we had a, a solid place to run it that would, that would stay up and, you know, we could collect user data. I definitely think that the the storage was top of mind, not compute or the network at the time. Okay. Because you were anticipating folks, uh, just the content being posted, the, the, the GIFs, the memes, the, the, the posts. I, I think so. I mean, it's, it's my, well, my first thought was like, I want to own my data. And so mm-hmm. I, I knew that like, I wanted to have some raid redundancy back there. And I was kind of in this this head game of like, if I'm going to own my data and I'm going to take the plunge and just really kind of move off of the cloud, um, you know, I want I want to be able to invest in this thing. So I'm going through the exercise of like looking through different NAS options and like, how can I get something online where I just, you know, throw more disks at it and it'll just grow indefinitely. And I think that kind of opened up the conversation about like, wait a minute, this thing will grow indefinitely, right? People will continue to join. We don't really have a retention policy and it might be a small amount of data today, but like 10 years from now, how much how much data are we going to have? And I've been down this route before at work and I know how this, this, this ends, right? Like we get a tremendous amount of data. And then I think, I want to say it was Dominic who first mentioned like, you're only considering your data. You're uh-huh. federating with 20,000, you know, other instances <laughs> on the internet what about their data? Like it has to come from somewhere. And then like that led to the conversation of like, how does Mastodon work? And as it turns out, federating is is very much federating, right? Like, you know, anytime somebody on a server that we're following posts a cat picture, we download it and our server hosts it. And that, mm-hmm. that picture okay. has to be hosted somewhere. And mm-hmm. so like storage definitely became like the the number one conversation for me when, when we started to really see an uptick in adoption. And my understanding is Mastodon uh, essentially provides you a package of software, you know, the Mastodon stuff for the Federation, but also I think Postgres for the database and Nginx for load balancing. Did you bring anything else to it? Um, at the time it was, it was out of the box, right? Like we, there, there's an Arch Linux AUR package. It sets up and Dominic, you're going to have to help me out here. It sets up Nginx as a reverse proxy, mm-hmm. Postgres as a database. There's yep. uh, a Redis cache, the Mastodon yep. instant, like server itself, which is an instance of the Puma Ruby server. Yep. Oh, Sidekick. All the, all the compute heavy stuff that it does, uh, goes through Sidekick. And, uh, you know, it comes with a configuration that basically connects everything together. Assumption is you're running it basically on a single server mm-hmm. and it's all, you know, connecting to itself. Um, that was basically it. Uh, I think early on, we didn't really know how it works because it comes as this giant thing that you install and all the bits unpack and then it runs and it runs and it's great. Um and I think we we wanted to be able to poke at it a bit to understand what was going on where. And so uh, I think the first thing that we ended up bringing to it was just some sort of monitoring, some sort of ability to observe the system and find out what was happening where. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so we uh, we pulled in Prometheus, you know, uh, off the shelf um, thing that that is fairly well supported uh, that will work with a number of different systems. With um, they have what they call exporters that that essentially pull data from other running packages and export it into a form that can be ingested into a time series database. And then we pulled in Grafana, which is a, um, a system for visualizing time series databases. We went and found just a load of off the shelf Grafana dashboards. So. Uh, we found one for nodes, which just basically shows you all of the internals of a Linux box and how it's running. Um, we got an Nginx uh, one and, and threw that at it. The uh, Mastodon itself does export some stuff through uh, StatsD. Uh, it's, it's not enormously useful out of the box, but it was enough to understand what was happening uh, and to understand eventually you know where we started hitting scaling limits or when when things started to kind of stumble a little bit we were able to understand what was going on but that that was kind of our entry point to the black box was just poking at it from the outside and and seeing seeing what what all the numbers were once we started reading off the you know the prometheus and the grafana charts and it sounds like storage is one of the things uh nova in particular you were worried about keeping an eye on yeah i think so i think storage was it was the big question. And and as Dominic got the graphs online and we started to really like like we, we kind of shifted our headspace from like we were worried about how many disks we have in it and how much storage we're taking up to, oh, my gosh, we, we actually have a service and we need to start monitoring our traffic. <laughs> and we have all of the same, you know, like to quote Jurassic Park, like we have all the major problems of a zoo and a theme park. right? Like We, <laughs> we, we have all the major problems of of any production service, right? Like monitoring keeping it online we had an upgrade we had to solve early on right like upgrades are notoriously difficult and i think that like storage was was the, the sort of like the luxury question that started off when we like had a little more free time to kind of like daydream about what we wanted the thing to be and then it very quickly turned into like this reactive organic service that we weren't prepared to to operate where we we were like we actually have bigger fish to fry, right? We we need to have a serious conversation about the network and about like how many cores we have for this thing. And more importantly, mm -hmm. how are we going to start to break this thing apart and distribute it across multiple nodes? And like, what does that network topology look like? And next thing you know, we're drawing architectural diagrams. And <laughs> I mean, there, there was there was a whole a whole thing here that happened. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that November when growth started to spike and you realized maybe we can't just run this on one server in a basement? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll start the conversation off here. Um, so we have we have a blog where we have posted all of our like main incidents. And this this thing in November was kind of like the 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 grand daddy, for lack of a better term, of incidents that we had that kind of kicked off our like incident response process that we have today. And so there's there's a pretty decent write up uh, about everything that we're going through on our blog that I'm sure we can like put you can help us get into the notes or whatever. Yep. But but basically, um, uh, we were running in the basement. And I think the first thing that started to happen was we, we started to see slow requests. 
And it, it was pretty obvious from from like the end user perspective that like the, the service was degrading. And I think we were in this like very strange world where like images wouldn't post. So like we were thinking something might be going on with storage. Mm-hmm. And then we would kind of have these like incomplete requests where like every time you you load a page, you would, you know, you get the 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 basic HTTP content back from from the server, but then there's some JavaScript and some WebSockets that need to load and there's some images that need to load and propagate. And those are independent requests that fire on the back end and and those would kind of like start to to degrade slowly in the background so you were loading incomplete pages um and i think we were i want to say maybe around like 17 or 18,000 users at the time like mm-hmm. not really the size mm-hmm. we are today and and that was really when we we were like okay we we need to start having conversations about what we're going to do with this thing um and i'll let dominic go into a little more detail on like the actual outage because i know that there was i think three or four days that were that got pretty rough when we finally had to kick out uh of the basement finally yeah the so the end result was that we ended up kind of getting out of the basement but the the way that we did that we we uh we had the four servers that were running uh in in the the rack behind nova um and the the reason why we had the four, so we mentioned earlier that the Mastodon kind of runs as a monolith, but we had split off some of the work to um, to three of the other servers. So we we had um, we had these uh, what we called the water tower. We had uh, Yako, Wako, and Dot uh, at the time, who were like the the three compute nodes. Uh, basically, they were they were housing the the system D units for the. Um, for the I've forgotten the sidekick. Word. sidekick. Thank you. God, why are we blanking on that every time? <laughs> it's it's uh, PTSD, I think. Um, there was the the sidekick services that were running. They they basically run things like the the pulling from other um, instances, pushing out to other instances. Uh, they they run some of the sort of the uh, background stuff, like sending out emails for new registrations. Um, they're they're pretty compute heavy. Their load is is a little different depending on what type of work they're doing. Uh, they run a number of different queues um, uh, called like ingress, default, push, pull, mailer. Um, and we didn't actually know what those queues were doing at the time, uh, which was one fun thing that we were trying to even just work out what they were doing. Um, but we knew that some of them were more compute heavy, some were more RAM heavy, some would just stop for a while and then do a bunch of work. And it turned out they were doing image processing. Um, but we had found that we we had this scaling solution where we could, uh, which is fairly well documented, uh, where you can you can sort of split those off, run them on other um, other servers, and Redis acts as a coordinator to make sure that the jobs are pushed on and, mm-hmm. and pulled back. Um, so you went from one we all, server to multiple servers. Yes, yeah. we went from one to two, and then three, and then eventually four. Uh, and we we also moved the um, we put some of the Puma services as well across there. So um, Mastodon itself. It comes as a monolith, but it actually you can break it apart into bits, and it uses Redis as a coordinator, and it it seems to work, you know, pretty well at that sort of scale. Um, so the Mastodon source a, anticipated that as site scale, folks might want to break apart pieces exactly. of the application and run them on individual nodes. Exactly, and there, and there's some pretty good documentation about which bits you can pull off and which bits you can take out and how to configure them. Um, and it works pretty well up to, I'd say, what a reasonable scale might be expected for a personal instance, or even, <laughs> you know, a medium-sized instance. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there gets to be a lot more nuance when you get bigger in terms of exactly how you schedule those sidekick workers, where you put them, how you balance the load between them. That I won't say we've solved, but we've certainly reached another um, another sort of point of minimum energy 
where it's it's relatively stable now. Um, but I should go back to how we ended up going back out of the basement. So what we started to see, we saw a number of, of failure modes and, and most of the effort was in figuring out what was actually going on. So we saw some incomplete requests. Uh, we saw um, HTTP response times were uh, degrading. We saw duplicate posts, which was a, a weird side oh, effect. Oh yeah, one of the, <laughs> you remember the duplicate? Posts. Yeah, no, this was this was a, this was a good uh, one. This was like one of those weird things where I just looked at the server and I was like, I, I have no idea what's going on. This yeah. is like very very bizarre. I think we ended up tracking down that it was the behavior of a particular client uh, in a failure mode where it would try and uh, retry itself. Uh, and and there was um, a little bit of um, code in, in, in Mastodon where there was some idempotence around the right to the database. And the check was in just slightly the wrong place. Um, actually, one of the people on our uh, instance ended up putting a pull request into Mastodon and got that fixed off the back of this. Oh, wow. Uh, they just they shifted the check up like two lines. <laughs> and so now that shouldn't happen anymore for anyone else. Um, so, but, <laughs> a little but feather was, in, in Team Hacky Dan's yeah, cap it was, there. It was great. Um, but yeah, so we 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 saw the response times going uh, up. We saw Postgres response times were degrading. Um, and the problem that we found was that we, we didn't know enough to know what the root cause was and what the symptoms were. So we were sort of poking at this thing. And um, there, there were a few days where it was, it was frustrating because the service would sort of, uh, it would be running fine. And then it would just go very, very bad for 10 minutes. And then it would be fine again. And there's some lovely graphs in some of the posts on the blog where you can see the response times going from you know way less than a second up to 50, 60 seconds, mm. and then just dropping back down again. <laughs> uh, and um, you know, this, we were covering this with um, there were two of us in a European uh, time zone, and there were a few people in a West Coast time zone. And so we were sort of, you know, handing off <laughs> twice a day, uh -huh. uh, taking laptops to bed with us to make sure that we could uh, hand off correctly and make sure that we could uh, respond if the alerts went off. Um, and to be clear, these are just volunteers, people who came along and said, hey, I'm yes. interested in helping you out with this. Yeah, and this is half a dozen people who were just, you know, had had signed up to sort of have some fun with Mastodon. <laughs> that a couple of months later, we were running it as a, a real service, right? We had um, enough users that we felt a responsibility to make sure this service was running well. And also it was a problem that we wanted to be able to solve. I think everyone that was working on it and everyone that does work on it has a, a significant amount of experience in running distributed systems. Mm -hmm. And here was one that was just behaving badly. And we all wanted to get to the bottom of why and to understand what was what was going on you weren't getting um, enough of that at work uh <laughs> that is a great question um <laughs> i i think well i'll speak for myself um not anymore uh i've i've reached uh, a, that that beautiful period of my career where i am no longer doing the thing that got me to where i am <laughs> and i have a craving to get back to this sort of thing you have ascended um, exactly um so yeah, so we we saw these these kind of flaps of the service. It would recover, it would level out, then we get a spike, uh, and then we started to see just complete outages on on the CDN, uh, complete outages on the edge. Um, there there was a uh, I don't remember the sequences. So I'm going to have to hand back to to Nova how we managed to eventually figure out what that root cause was and how we knew we needed to get out of the basement. So. 
I, I, I love how I'm going to say this. It was you. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I blanked um, it out completely. No, no. So, so like, like just to kind of summarize, um, we're running in the basement. We broke everything apart. You know, we had started with one node. We moved to two. We moved to three. I was in this head space of like, just throw more computers at the problem. Um, and we didn't really seem to be maxing out the network at first. So I think our peak network here in the basement was roughly one terabyte of traffic egress per day. Um, and so we were we were seeing a lot of folks, you know, we were serving images and serving videos and we, we were, you know, doing everything you would expect from a social media site. And so as the site was was flapping, right, we were seeing these big spikes where the service would just fall apart and, you know, Mastodon would blow up with Hackaderm is a piece of junk. They don't know what they're doing, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, we would see four hours where people would join and it would their first impression would be, well, I don't know what everybody's talking about. And uh -huh. Mastodon is lightning fast, right? And it's they're one hop away down the street in Portland or, you know, in California or something. And they're like, everything's fine. Yeah. So Dominic had set up graphs and, and really what kind of led the charge of observability for us. And the one graph that really like identified the root cause and our single constraint was our disk IO. Yes. And uh, so the there, there was, I think eight disks in our server, we called Alice and two of the eight disks were, were just peak IO at a hundred percent. And we were able to correlate this peak IO with uh, about a 30 second time differential between the peak IO and when the, the the cascading failure would actually trickle out to the edge and we would see 500s and slow responses on our CDN nodes at the edge. So mm -hmm. we had a whole CDN sitting in front of the water tower here. And um, that is what ultimately led to like us kind of digging into how Mastodon was mounting the block storage on the back end, which later kicked off a really interesting discussion uh, and ultimately a really fascinating like uh, strategy to get out of the basement and move all of our media storage to DigitalOcean, thanks to some folks at DigitalOcean, and also move our compute out of the basement into a data center in Germany that we now host with Hetzna. Let's pause for a message from our sponsor, Interoptic. Interoptic is the optical transceiver and cable specialist that maximizes your IT savings while minimizing network failures. Interoptic provides high-performing optics at a fraction of the price of brand-name optics. The Interoptic experts can help you spec the best optical transceivers and cables for your network environment. Interoptic optical transceivers are 100% guaranteed to be operationally equivalent with Cisco, Juniper, Extreme, Arista, Brocade, Palo Alto, and many other switches and routers. Due to Interoptic's deep optical transceiver technical experience, they can ensure that all messages, alerts, alarms, and threshold data are equivalent to OEM brands. Interoptic deploys rigorous 100% testing on their devices before they're shipped. Interoptic optical transceivers are built to the exact same quality standards as the OEMs and typically come from the exact same manufacturing lines. That's why insurance companies Companies, retailers, financial services, and federal and state government customers deploy optics and cables from Interoptic. You can purchase the same, if not better performing, optical transceivers tested and backed up by real engineers at a fraction of OEM costs. Find out more at interoptic.com slash packetpushers. That's interoptic.com slash packetpushers. And now back to the podcast. Okay, so it's storage then, it turns out, or at least Disk.io turned out to be the problem. Two really bad disks. We two had two bad disks. disks. Was yeah. it would just was it a hardware issue then? So okay, so this is a good question. So they were they were two different manufacturers in a raid pool sitting underneath ZFS or ZFS. Mm -hmm. And um they, they were clocked at the same speed as the other disks. 
So we we haven't able to determine if it was a hardware issue. I did put them into a different server and tried to just do some basic like load testing against them to see like how quickly I could write data. And they seemed to be perfectly fine when I was just writing to the two disks in question for some reason. I don't know if this is a a kernel driver issue with ZFS or how we had it configured at the RAID level. We were using a software RAID, not a hardware RAID. But for some reason, when these two disks were sitting alongside the other six disks in the pool, we saw it just the the user space component was not able to read or write from these two disks in the blocks that it was hosting with the same speed and efficiency it was able to access the other disks. Mm-hmm. So I, I I think and like again we could in theory go test this if we wanted to, but like I think it has something to do with either how the Linux kernel was was offering the block devices or how ZFS was trying to assemble them at runtime mm-hmm. or some combination of the two creating some weird, bizarre, bespoke block situation that, that we didn't see in some other way. I, I'm not totally confident, to be honest. Okay, but it, it sounds like you really had to get into the guts of the system, though, to diagnose and fix this problem. We were very angry. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yeah, we, it, it was uh, it was the, the off-the-shelf um, node uh, dashboard that I talked about a bit earlier in, in Grafana that really uh, gave the, the the game away and i think uh, in in one of the incident reports there's some graphs that show it where that deep in that like y- you have to expand a bunch of rows and kind of drill down and then there is a, an iops graph there and you could see it went very angry purple for two of the discs uh for uh, as as nova said just a few seconds before everything fell apart every uh-huh. time uh-huh. um and and we still i don't think we know exactly what triggered the bad writes, the bad reads, maybe it was a certain amount of traffic, maybe it was something, you know, of uh, it was media uploads, media downloads, uh, maybe it was someone joining and and uh, from another instance, transferring in from another instance, because that triggers a lot of uh, read write and a lot of um, WebSocket work as well. Um, and so we've seen that kind of trigger some interesting traffic patterns when that happens. Um, I don't think we ever got to the bottom of that, but when we figured out it was the disks, there was a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of passion about what we should do with those discs once they came out of the machine, <laughs> uh, including running them over. Or, I'm, I'm thinking uh, about an office space kind of montage with exactly. The, the yeah. the printer, they're yeah. still back yeah. there. Yeah, they're, they're still in there. Oh, we need to have a party at some point. <laughs> those discs. <laughs> um, I, I, have, I know someone who can get access to thermite if you'd like to watch them, watch them burn and explode. <laughs> There you uh, go. That might be the that might be the final. And uh, he is in the storage space, so there may be a correlation there. <laughs> there you go. Um, so, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Nova. Oh no, I was just going to say. So, just to kind of summarize really quick, because uh, I know that we've kind of been all over the place. Um, you know, the the the, the discs. Like we, we pretty much came to this conviction where it was like the discs are bad, whether it's. Uh, the kernel and how it's offering the block devices or the ZFS layer on top or the hardware itself, somewhere in there, we, we were able to, to prove that something was going wrong. And there was this discussion of like, do we go and do we start stack tracing, um, you know, the runtime components and see what's hitting the disks and mm-hmm. trying to break them off. And, and, and then there was this whole other discussion was like, maybe this is just the universe's way of saying, Nova, get out of your home lab. <laughs> right. Like, at this point, if if we're like really considering doing like kernel level analysis on some hardware in the home lab, like yeah. <laughs> it, does it just make sense to like move this thing to like some proper hardware somewhere else? Right. And so I, I think that kind of just like made the conversation 
really, really obvious that it was it was time to start talking about things like funding and how we were going to get out of the basement and where we were going to go and what the trade offs were and what the implications were of like where we went, because this the whole point of this was to kind of get away from this like large centralized corporate like, you know, Silicon Valley owns our data mentality. Uh-huh. And so taking taking our little homegrown hacker Mastodon instance, we have like fought so hard to build and then, you know, handing it over to a cloud provider to like kind of defeated the purpose of like breaking off in the first place. So mm-hmm. there was there was definitely this like lot of animosity around what do we do? Where do we go? Do we even debug the disks or not? And I think like I feel like we made a good decision to to move out. But um, I don't know. We can we can talk more about it if we want. Yeah. So I. I personally can understand why you wouldn't want to go into uh, a hosting provider. How did you decide on where you landed up? So we we talked for a while. Um, you know, I wanted to go back to my home country of Iceland um, just because I feel like the the well one the economy needs it, and then two, uh, electricity is effectively free there. So mm-hmm. I, I kind of just felt that that there would be a good opportunity if if storage was going to be what we were concerned about to get it to a relatively neutral country um, that has a moderately successful internet connection across a frozen ocean. <laughs> um, and then I think that um, the real kicker for me that that sealed the deal was was international privacy law GDPR. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that like and like again right here's our little hobby project and now we're like we're becoming like small time international corporate attorneys because we're trying to figure out privacy laws and gdpr implications of like where we're going to host you know personal data and and user data and so i think the decision to go to to hetzna in germany came from we we have somebody who volunteers who is from germany and was like it works great they they it was this was very much a traffic discussion at this point. They have huge amounts of egress at a very reasonable price, uh, and we can get some like really compelling um, auction servers with like strong NVMe drives. And I think once it was like it checks the GDPR box, it checks the the storage box. We you know we have NVMe drives, which like at that point we were all like pretty much convinced SSD was terrible, and we were never going to run SSD ever again. Um, and then also the egress conversation made it pretty easy for us to to just go and, and try to set something up. I think Dominic at that point was already running an observability server in mm-hmm. Hetzna for us. Mm-hmm. And so like we had one server there and then it kind of happened the same way this whole thing happened in the first place. Like one server turned into two, two turned into three. And then next, you know, we're like a full time Hetzna client. Mm. We do have some um, of our services in in Linode still. Um, our, a couple of our CDN nodes are still uh, hosted in in Linode as well, mm-hmm. um, which we've been able to take advantage of because they they have a really nice internal network. Uh, and so one one of the nice tricks uh, that we have, which um, I think had German volunteer came up with, um, was that uh, if we ha- we have one of our CDN nodes on the west coast and we have a CDN node that's in Germany um, n- next door to to Hetzner. And what we found was that if the West Coast uh, Linode CDN tried to connect to our backends in Hetzner, uh, it was fine, but not great. But if we proxied it through to the other CDN node that's sitting in in Frankfurt uh, and then to Hetzner, it was staggeringly faster huh. um, and and lots more throughput and much, much lower latency uh, because we basically take advantage of Linode's private uh, networking. Uh-huh. And so that's the setup that we've ended up with is we we have a couple of a uh, couple of Linode CDNs. Uh we have there's a West Coast. Uh we have uh I can't remember where one of them is. Um maybe East Coast, or do we just have two in Germany? I can't remember now. 
Um, but yeah, we have West Coast Germany, and then everything else is is Hetzner. And I think we have nine servers now total. Okay. Um, One observation, and this is aimed at our networking uh, centric audience. Observability is your friend because uh, Dominic was able to show that it wasn't the network, which would have been my initial assumption um, when you're just running this out of, you know, essentially off uh, a consumer ISP connection. Uh, The other thing is, uh, Nova, you kind of hinted at this, that you started off just doing this as sort of a fun technical project to figure out how this thing works. But suddenly you're finding yourself having to think about issues like, data protection, user privacy, content moderation, because you've started a social network, how are you kind of grappling with the non-technical aspects of this enterprise? Um, I'm going to just stop the conversation right here and say huge, huge shout out to my loving and beautiful partner, Quintessence, who is not here on the call. Uh-huh. She She is the one who she's the real magic behind Jurassic Park. She's the real miracle worker of this whole thing. (laughs) So she handles all the content moderation. She's the executive director of the Nivenly Foundation, which is an an open source nonprofit that we we incorporated earlier this year. Um, The the foundation serves as the governing body for this entire effort and and manages the volunteers, manages our funding. We're we're establishing like uh, a trade organization where where folks can come and, and get involved with Hackaderm. We've had a lot of corporate reach out, you know, we want a hackaderm instance. What does that mean? What does that look like? And in some cases, you know, they have five, 600 followers. And in some cases they have five, 6 million followers. Wow. And, and that all of a sudden turns into like, that's a traffic conversation, right? right. Yep. Like, like uh, to give you an example, like, like uh, the GitHub Twitter user is 2 million Twitter followers. And if, if they came and were like, Hey, we want to move to your server. Like we now have to actually crunch some numbers and understand what that's going to look like. Right. And that's, mm-hmm. there's data that comes with that. And there's, there's traffic that comes with that. And there's runtime compute that comes with that. And so um, a lot of that is kind of managed as like, an, th- this is a really interesting thing. It's like an open source service. So we we manage the service like it's an open source project, just like Linux or Kubernetes or anything else, but we actually operate a service. But but in theory, n- there is no ownership of Hackaderm. It's it's a nonprofit. It's it's owned by the general public, uh, at least in the United States anyway. And so like we're just basically the stewards of of the the system and and we establish the the governance of of how we manage it. Um and so I do think that there's a lot more non-technical work than I had certainly anticipated, Uh which I think it says a lot given the amount of technical work (laughs) we had to do to keep this thing online. But yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely no small task. I think we have more volunteer content moderators than we do actual infrastructure volunteers at this point. By far, I think at least I think three times as many on the moderation side. By necessity. Um, Yes. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and and um, Q has uh, Quintessence has done this amazing job with corralling them and documenting processes and building processes. Mm-hmm. And um, you know we we have a, a good set of rules uh, that were put in place pretty early on that have, have stood the test of time. I mean they're pretty straightforward. Um, it it all starts with don't be a dick and goes from there. <laughs> um, which you know most one of our one of our uh, nuances is uh, well how do I know. And it's like, well, you, you know, <laughs> <laughs> if you have to ask, you know, yeah, if you have to ask the I question, was just thinking you're probably yes, uh-huh. it. Um, but, but what, what Q has done is put a lot more nuance behind those, whatever it is, 15 or 16 rules. Mm-hmm. Um, 
figured out how we can uh, bring on um, corporate accounts to uh, the Fediverse because the one of the things about the Fediverse that we've we've learned is that um, there's a fairly uh, sort of anti-corporate sentiment around. Um, more more nuanced way of putting it would be there's very much an anti-don't sell us stuff um, sentiment, which I completely understand uh, and empathize with. And so there's a fear that by bringing corporations in, uh, what we're really doing is we're bringing advertising, uh, we're bringing mm. sponsorship, we're bringing se selling into this safe space. Um, and I think what what our moderation team have done really beautifully is set up some guidelines uh, for us to know when we can bring someone in who would be classed as a, a, a corporate account, uh, but also give feedback to that account of what we expect. Um, we don't expect you just to you know post about products. Uh, we expect you to engage. We expect you to be here, yes, representing a, a corporate account, but still engaging in the instance as if you were uh, any other account. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think that I assume some that of those takes a, a fair deal of moderation then to to make sure they're living up to that uh, expectation. Absolutely, yeah. And and we've had um, we obviously get reports from our users. Um, that's one th uh, other aspect of Mastodon that's quite mature uh, and maturing quickly is. Um, there is a moderation interface uh, that the, the moderators can access where users can report uh, on other users, report on other posts. And then there's a set of tools that we can use to, um, to limit, we can warn people, we can suspend people's accounts. So we, we have all sort of the basic tools of content moderation uh, at our disposal. When to use each when to respond to appeals, how to respond to appeals, and tracking previous decisions so that we build up uh, sort of a set of, of precedents has been something that our moderation team under Q have put together. And uh, have just, that's been the, the, the kind of the magic source, the, the secret behind, um, I think, the success of the instance. The fact that it still feels like a very friendly place to be, and it yeah. hasn't been invaded by uh, horrors, and um, it feels like the safe space that we wanted it to be. None of that is technical. None of that is to do with the servers that we're running or the amount of egress that we have to cope with. That is all that moderation team and all the work that they do. And we we wouldn't have a, an instance that we'd be proud of without them. So it, it's that that side of things is absolutely critical and and will continue to be the hardest job. So I, I, one more question then to kind of wrap up on that theme and on the conversation in general. Um, Nova, you hinted at this earlier, sort of your initial impetus was the appeal of the decentralized, uh, a decentralized system is that it's not owned by a giant corporation. And yet at some point when you scale, even at modest scale, you kind of have to rely on some centralized systems just to get the whole thing to work. So how are you kind of reconciling those potentially uh, competing visions? To me, it's all about size. So like, like you see this kind of pop up in diff different parts of like the socioeconomic fabric that makes up the world. Like one example being like Dunbar's number. Um, you know, we're what I would consider a medium sized instance. Uh -huh. You know, I, I think we're actually seeing quite a lot of criticism that like we should we shouldn't be this big, uh -huh. that, that we're already too big. Uh -huh. And I think one of the things Mastodon does really well is it, it kind of gives users some autonomy of their data. So, you know, for example, Drew, if, if you came in and created a Hackaderm inst or account on our instance, 
there's there's tools available to you in the dashboard where you can migrate your data to another instance, including all of your followers, all of your images, et cetera. And actually, I don't, I don't think your images go. I think just your account goes and the original images stay where they are. But the point is, is that, that you can basically move your account from one server to another and you see servers shutting down and you see like new servers showing up. And I kind of think that that's going to be the general theme of the Fediverse. And so like, you know, we do have a centralized effort for Hackaderm, but I don't look at it like we're trying to solve a global problem. We don't want to become the Mastodon instance for right. like all of humanity. Yeah. We want to become one of the more common Hackaderm style Mastodon instances for the technical community, right? And there's there's other ones out there. There's one for InfoSec. There's one for just general open source called Fostodon. Mm -hmm. You know, I see a lot of the folks on Hackaderm are like SREs, infrastructure mm -hmm. engineers, mm -hmm. en engineers, engineering managers, directors, VPs. We see a lot of like the like the backend, like Silicon Valley cloud computing, Kubernetes networking folks kind of hang out on uh, on Hackaderm. And like, I would expect it to stay relatively medium as we move forward. Okay. So uh, if folks are interested in volunteering or donating money to the project, do, is there a place they can go to, to pitch in, help out? Nivenly.org. So Hackaderm is, is kind of one of the main verticals under the Nivenly umbrella at this point. And so if you go to Nivenly.org, you can find there's donate links. There's like how we how we govern things, how we do content moderation. And then you can go and you can drill into Hackaderm specifically, um, which is the, the main social media service that, that we operate as the foundation. Okay, that's nivenly.org, uh, N-I-V-E-N-L-Y.org. I'll also have that link in the show notes. Uh, any other links or things you want to direct people to? I, I we have everything's sorry. I, I think everything's linked off of nivenly.org. Okay. Um the if, if people are looking to 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 donate them, you know, money to Hackaderm, I mean that would be amazing. We we have hosting costs, we have serving costs. Um we're now set up as a GitHub sponsor. Uh so that's linked in there. Um if people just want to show up on the Discord uh and, and volunteer their time or even just you know pop in and sort of watch how it all happens, uh we're pretty open and transparent with how everything happens and, and what's going on. Um we benefited a lot from that and so we've continued to do that with the public dashboard but also on the discord we talk about everything that's, that's happening with the broader community there um so we should pop a link into the to the discord uh, invitation link as well i will make sure that gets in yeah all right well uh, thank you so much uh both of you for taking some time out of your incredibly busy schedules to talk about this i think it's been a fascinating conversation uh we'll have plenty of links in the show notes if folks want to dive into hackyderm i recommend exploring mastodon in general or hackyderm in particular if you want to get onto an alternate social network and, and see what's out there and connect with some technical people uh dominic and nova thank you for joining us uh, and thank you always for our listeners for joining us uh, you can find this in many more fine free technical podcasts and our community blog it's all packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.